RDS. How do we treat it? What's good? What's bad? What's indifferent? Mark's going to tell us. Let's go. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jonathan Downham, and I'm an advanced critical care practitioner in the UK, in the Midlands more precisely. I've been working in critical care now for over 20 years uh, and have been in an advanced role for 10 now, thinking about it. So this is a podcast where I'm going to discuss with a chap called Mark Ramsey about how we care for our ARDS patients, what's good, what's bad and what's indifferent, as I said in the intro. I did want to just briefly talk to you about a few other things as well, one of which is the fact that I am currently building a course uh, which is aimed at those new to ITU, those thinking about ITU, those that maybe have been working there for a little while. And uh, the first section of the course is going to be about the respiratory aspects of intensive care. As I say, I'm building it at the moment. Um, it's going to have lots and lots of videos in, lots of free giveaways and PDFs for you to work from. Um, and I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to release it later on this year. If you are interested, go to my website, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. And if you go to the teaching section, you can have a look at the early work I've done. This is very much work in progress, so it's going to look a lot different from what it is now. Uh, but that's my plan building the course. Um, I also have just released a couple of posts on capnography and ARDS and proning. So if you go to the website, you can find those under the mechanical ventilation section. So ARDS and proning. And there's a couple of giveaways there as well. So if you want to give me your email, I can send you the crib sheets for both of those, which might help you as well. Anyway, without further ado, let's go talk to Mark. So, Mark, why don't you just start by introducing yourself first, and then we'll uh, let people know what it is we're actually going to be chatting about. Sure. Uh, so, my name is Mark Ramsey. I'm a current critical care fellow in the United States at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I recently finished my emergency medicine residency in Brooklyn, New York at Maimonides Medical Center, and I have an interest in doing infographics and medical education as part of the FOMED community. So, Excellent. thanks for having me on. So let's just, as an aside there, the first question is, why infographics? Why do you think they're useful? Yeah, so I have found myself multiple times on a shift uh, trying to refer back to an image I saw or something where I had referenced an article, a figure. And so what I enjoy doing is combining my knowledge on particular topics into one central figure and being able to quickly reference that on shift, not just for clinical care of patients, but more importantly for the education of trainees, residents, medical students, so on. I've found myself that this is also something I can share with the students quite quickly. And after we've given some kind of a short talk or presentation, I can easily send them that infographic and then they can do the same and reference it in the future when taking care of patients in a similar scenario. Yeah. And I noticed one thing that you've done on the uh, the infographics going to be talking about is using the QR code for the references as well, because uh, I think that's a fabulous thing to do, because it's always baffled me why at the end of a presentation, somebody puts up a slide with all the references on and then it disappears. And I think, well, how is that useful? You know, right. um, if you can just zap it with your phone, then that's something you can take away and use for later. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm loving the infographics. And this one caught my eye in particular. So just for those people that um, are, are, are listening and not 
not um, necessarily watching. Um, the infographic that I saw was uh, therapy options in acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and in it, you talk about, uh, you have a summary slide and then four, uh, three other infographics. So the, the summary infographic is proning paralytics and protection. And really, as well as uh, lauding the benefits of the infographic, because I think it's a wonderful thing. And, and I'm hoping you'd be happy if I put this up on the in the show notes as well or on the Please website. Um, as well as lauding the benefits of the infographic, I think I just wanted to talk about some of the options that we have with acute respiratory distress syndrome now. One of the things that we've all experienced um, to a much greater degree over the last six months with the coronavirus crisis that we've had is treating the patients with an acute respiratory distress syndrome like syndrome if you like um, I think the jury's still out as to whether it's exactly the same but it certainly elicits exactly the same symptoms and exactly the same level of sickness for the patient doesn't it so um, we have been doing a lot of these things haven't we is that your experience as, as well during the recent crisis or the yeah. crisis shall I say Absolutely. And actually where this idea had come from was having done uh, so many ICU shifts in our COVID specific um, unit in Brooklyn, our COVID ICU. I was uh, already accepted into critical care fellowship at that time. And so I was put uh, in the ICU there to help manage these patients. And what I found was that a lot of the trainees, particularly the interns, uh, did not know as much about ARDS and then were put into a particular situation where they were managing so much unknown, not just about COVID, but about their own basic knowledge of ARDS. And so I took that kind of one step further to break it down into a very simple, easy way to remember kind of the tenets of the treatments for ARDS. And that's where the proning, paralytic, and protection comes in. Uh, and so then I took it a step further so that it wasn't just isolated to those individual little columns where there isn't much room on that summary slide to put details. And so I added and made a infographic specific to each of those three components uh, and tenants of therapy in, in arts. And so that's kind of where the idea came from in my experience with COVID playing into the creation of this infographic. Okay. So... Now we've talked about that, let's go into those individual ones as well, because I think they're the ones that um, uh, potentially are going to lead us into the most uh, discussion about some of the things that we think we should be doing and some of the evidence for that as well. So if we just go back a slide, let's start with my current favourite, which is proning. Now, we have never done so much proning as we have done in the last six months. Proning was something that we did occasionally. Um, I'd probably say we may have done it in as little as five to ten percent of our patients um this is my own experience uh i think during um the peak of the coronavirus uh the last peak anyway which was for us was april we probably were doing it on more like 40 to 50 percent of our patients were being proned now i've just been with the uh european society of intensive care medicine do a recording a, a video with them um, and there was an italian team there as well as an english team and we had a little competition as to whose proning method was best um, the patient fortunately said that the english team's proning method was best so that was probably good um, but interestingly um, they have a slightly different technique in that um, they we use pillows to prop our 
patients onto mm. when we turn them over. The Italians don't. What they do is they deflate the uh, cells of the mattress when they turn the patient oh, over, which is not something we've ever done before. Uh, but consequently, they uh, for the average patient, they would have a team of three pe people to prone the patient. Um, so it'd just be one at the head, two either side, because you're not worrying about pillows and you don't have to have them quite as tight. You know, the the rolling up of the sheets that we do, uh, we find that you need them very tight to keep the pillows in place, but they didn't. Um, so it's just interesting. But that's, that's just a bit of an aside, really. Mm -hmm. Your experience of proning presumably has been similar over the last few months that you've found yourself being involved in it a lot more. Uh, I, you cut out and I didn't hear the question. What was the last part of that question? I was just saying your experience of proning has probably been similar to mine that you found yourself doing it yeah. a lot more. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, especially uh, in the, the thick of the pandemic when we were in New York. Uh, my first experiences with proning uh, was as a medical student in a community ICU. Uh, we actually, I saw one of the proning beds actually. Um, yeah. The ones that would uh, rotate the patient almost uh, like a rotisserie kind of every uh, every so often. And I've found that those are extraordinarily expensive, require much more closer nurse nursing uh, care, and then are more loaded with complications that sometimes you aren't able to see as readily as the as without those beds. And so what we ended up doing uh, at trialing in, in New York were some of the big, large proning pillows. Uh, we had started to get those a lot more uh, where there was a space for the patient's uh, face and then uh, a little soft area for their belly as well. That seemed to be just more effective in terms of staffing efficiency. It was easier to get those on uh, onto the beds and then the patient to roll over on them. Much, much more difficult with the intubated patients as there wasn't a hole uh, for the ET tube. So that was reserved only for uh, non-intubated uh, or mechanically ventilated patients. Uh, in terms of the eff effectiveness, though, of proning, we would see quite an improvement in uh, patients just feeling better and their respiratory status Im improving uh, from proning. It didn't necessarily shorten their um, their ER course or their ICU course ultimately. It just helped kind of uh, limit the worsening of their symptoms in that particular moment. Were you you were finding then you were doing proning? This is the the a lot of self proning then patients who were proning themselves. That, that's not something we did at the start. It's, it's perhaps we only started advocating that maybe uh, two to three months into the actual worst peak that we had. It is something we advocate now, and many of the patients do actually report feeling much better for lying on their front. So, right. um, I think the uh, just to go to some of the the evidence for proning i think some of the issues with proning prior to this particular crisis was the fact that the biggest study was the the proceva study wasn't it which was a french study Correct. a french mm -hmm. study only um and it was done uh, one of the biggest criticisms was it, it was one that was done in centers that were used to proning uh, mm -hmm as opposed to places that weren't. Now, I think it would be interesting future research because I think probably most ITUs now, if, if indeed not all of them, could probably say that they're reasonably expert at going through the proning process. Um, is, is that something you think might change research yeah. for us in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think now with uh, more places becoming proficient and experienced with proning, I think this will lead the way to a very different uh, type of studies being performed. 
interestingly enough, with when you had mentioned the Proceva study, though, these patients were highly selected. Uh, they were very uh, particularly chosen for the study. And yeah. more importantly, things like a fluid balance and catecholamine dosing, they weren't measured or reported. And so it kind of skewed things a little bit. And I think pre-COVID, this was a very good study for the effectiveness of proning. Uh, despite being in just a single country, I think it will certainly now that we have more experience with it, lead the way to future research, future research that will be uh, better kind of in, in honing down the exact benefits of, of proning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the exact benefits as well. Um, one of the things that people often asked me, certainly those that weren't experienced in ITU, is why do we prone? Uh, and actually, it took me a little while to get that straight in my own head. And I can explain it reasonably well now as to why we do actually prone and the benefits of it. Um, but there is still a little bit of debate, really, um, because I, I see on the on your infographic, it's prone for 12 to 16 hours. Um, now, this is for the um, is this for the intubated patient or this is this for both types of patient? So I had initially made this for both types of patients. Uh, and what I found is that especially now with my uh, more exposure to uh, intubated COVID patients in my ICU fellowship, I found that patients who are intubated are certainly prone for much longer. And I think that's just mainly because of how the necessary requirements to get them unproned yeah. are supinated. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've been in numerous situations where patients are not supinated simply because overnight there's less staff or there's uh, concern for they want the intensivist to be read more readily available in case there's complications. Um, yeah. And so I've noticed that uh, intubated patients are certainly prone for much longer. I haven't seen a significant improvement or difference in those patients' outcomes. Uh, again, that's just anecdotally. Uh, however, this, at least for my infographic, I had made it for both patients at the time, not knowing a little bit about those kind of uh, ancillary complicating factors to, to supinating them. Okay, um, because for us, it started at 16 hours, and it's, 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 uh, the, the evidence is a little unclear as to whether it's 16 hours or 14 or 12 or whatever. But I think ultimately what you say is very true in that when you've got, you know, in a unit of 30 ventilated patients, you've got seven or eight of them who were prone. It's actually as much about um, getting the team together to do the proning and unproning right. as it is about how long the patient's been prone. And one of the other things that we try to do is, is try to get the proning and the unproning process done during the day rather than on the night mm -hmm. shift when perhaps you haven't got quite so many staff and those right. staff that are on the night shift don't particularly want to be doing that at four or five o'clock in the morning when they're perhaps at their uh, most tired as well. Um, but certainly for us, we would find that uh, some patients would, uh, a bit like the literature said pre-proning, would improve quite dramatically on first proning then you turn them back and they would go bad again um and and some of them it would take four five six seven times proning and unproning to actually right. make that process stick um now whether it was the proning and the unproning that made them better or were they just getting better anyway again that's something that future studies is going to tell us i hope absolutely and that also kind of brings up uh one of the other points i had put on the infographic uh, about being having a trained team to perform it. 
Uh, when we were in Brooklyn, uh, we did have a proning team. And so it was nice to be able to consult them and they would come in and, and flip the patient. However, it was, again, like you had mentioned, primarily during the day, like an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so we had swayed away from one from proning outside of those hours, supinating or proning outside of those hours, simply because the team wasn't as readily available. Yeah. And I know having been somebody who's proned and unproned several times in one day, how hard that can be on one's back as well. However many precautions you take, uh, however much moving and handling advice you take, that can still be quite hard on your back as well. And leaves you feeling generally very exhausted during the day. So I think it's going to be interesting. I I was looking at some of the uh, guidelines as well. I looked at the Intensive Care Society guidelines over here for uh, prone positioning, and they're advocating prone positioning for the conscious COVID patient as well. So hopefully this is something that's happening on the wards. I don't know what it's like in the States at the moment, but certainly over here we are cranking up again, and it's looking rather inevitable that we're going to have ourselves another rough month or two, I think, certainly. So we're all getting prepared for it. So um, our intensive care unit now has more patients on high flow oxygen and um, CPAP than it did the first time round because we were worried about aerosol aerosol generating procedures etc so it's going to be slightly different but that's proning okay so let's let's just move on to the to the next part of the the slide and this is paralytics Mm -hmm. Um, and, and again this is really interesting because one of the things I've discovered here um with paralytics during the coronavirus crisis is that the the advice prior to coronavirus and i think from what i've read recently the 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 advice pro coronavirus is that you should be paralyzing patients um early if you can but for no more than 48 hours now the big problem that we've had with the coronavirus patient is that once you get them onto the paralyzing agent it's really hard to get them off it Mm -hmm. Uh, and we were having patients that were being paralyzed for six, seven, eight, nine, ten days before you could get them off the paralyzing agent. So it was a bit concerning that once you start them on it, getting them off it is difficult. And as a consequence, and one of the things that you 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 talk about the com- complications is the risk of myopathy. I wonder if that's something that we're going to find with the coronavirus patients that myopathies have become much more common as a consequence of it. Yeah, we had a very similar experience in terms of getting patients, having difficulty getting patients off of the paralytics. And then the unfortunate thing too, uh, which happens I think even prior to COVID, is that it's such an easy uh, and quick answer when there is patient dyssynchrony to be able to just put the patient either back on paralytics or to give them paralytic boluses. And the downside with that is number one, it, you're you're kind of going back to the complications you were hoping to avoid uh, in terms of like we had talked about the myopathy and the weakness. But then on top of that too is, uh, although that might be a quick fix, it doesn't necessarily kind of address the longer term situation or the longer term problem that is causing that patient's dyssynchrony at the time. For us, we had found that the patient's dyssynchrony, at least on the ventilator, was complicated by so many ancillary things relating to COVID. A lot of it would be um, patients that would clot. I mean, they would end up having PPs and they would end up having all sorts of other ancillary complications uh, from the coronavirus that would necessitate them being given paralytic boluses. So it's it's interesting because we don't know what the long-term or downstream effects of this is going to be. 
I speculate that there will be a lot of uh, weakness and myopathy in patients returning to those um, IC recovery clinics and and things like that. So we'll see kind of what happens with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, and just to go back to the evidence a little bit as well, we had the 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 uh, Rose trial done uh, mm-hmm. last year, uh, 2019, which myself and uh, Shagan Olisanya spoke about on a podcast a, uh, a little while ago. And really, the jury is, is still out a little bit about whether one should be starting early or late with the neuromuscular blocking agents. Um, I think probably uh, from an equipoise point of view, uh, Shagan's uh, thoughts were certainly that he would continue to use earlier rather than later but um, I think we've still got an awful lot to learn about the use of paralytics Um, from my point of view I think we were finding that um, once the patient was in that severe ARDS stage once the the FiO2 uh, and um, the the ratio between that was so high that we just thought well we need to add um, the muscle relaxant here, don't we? It wasn't necessarily about patient ventilator synchrony, but more, well, we're at 90% now or 80%. We need to add the neuromuscular blocking agent because it's not there yet, but then trying to get it off was also very difficult. So um, just interesting that you say about the two classes as well um, of the um, neuromuscular bro- blocking agents, the steroidal um, and the, the the things like the cisaticurium. We've only ever used the atricurium side of that equation. Mm-hmm. Is, is, steroid, is steroidal, are the steroidals being used as well as, or are they just the intermittent rather than the continuous agents? From what I've seen, at least here, is that it's more so the intermittent. Uh, I haven't had as much experience putting these patients on longer drips of these, uh, at least what we do here in Pittsburgh. I've noticed that it's more likely the, the second class, um, the sister coronium, is what we would likely put patients on longer drips of. Uh, I would be curious to see, uh, especially down the road, if there's any trials seeing if one is better than the other, in particular for either COVID patients or just severe hearts, that would be a certainly uh, interesting kind of study to like look into for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, an interesting one, um, like the proning, we're going to be doing, we do more proning, we're using more paralytics. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd be interested for me personally, I'm going to be having a discussion uh, with lots of physios in the near future because I'm hoping to talk to them about um, intensive care follow up clinics. Um, because I think there's a desire in this country for those to be set up and not necessarily the financial support that is needed. Um, but I think hopefully once coronavirus is, as uh, released its grip on us, we might see that there is a, a quite a big need for post ICU stroke coronavirus follow up. And I think the paralytics may be one of those things that might be adding to that with the uh, things like the ICU acquired weakness and the myopathies we're getting. Uh, certainly, I've seen again anecdotally, but a patient of ours who was with us during the coronavirus. Um, I think he was discharged from hospital sometime in June, July time. Um, and it's only now that he's posting pictures of himself walking 30 yards with two sticks um, independently. So, you know, that's the uh, the other side of the paralytics. It's, so it's the- interesting that you had a similar anecdote that because we in Brooklyn have another gentleman who also was in the ICU, uh, very critical condition with COVID. And then just recently, uh, maybe two or three weeks ago, 
Uh, I was shared a, a video of him also walking uh, several, di- uh, a little bit of a distance with just, you know, a walking cane and showing that, you know, he's made a large improvement. And this was not a young, healthy guy. This was a, a much older gentleman with, yeah. with multiple comorbidities. It was very reassuring to see, but those kind of patients are what I would love to f- to follow up in that clinic to see kind of what other detriments do they have? Uh, what other disabilities are, uh, do they now have as a result of the disease? Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I do hope that there's going to be um, certainly a massive need for some um, retrospective studies uh, following up their progress, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, we, I think we've gotten a huge amount to learn from this, haven't we? Because, you know, yeah. this is one virus, this is one, um, this is one pandemic, but, um, you know, it's, it's there's probably going to be more, maybe, hopefully not right. in our lifetime, but who knows? We're, we need to be Correct. ready for the next one, don't Absolutely. we? We're all a bit too... We're all a bit too unprepared. We were ready for flu, but not ready for a great deal else. Okay. And then the last one is the protection. Now, this is another one that uh, sometimes I think we've struggled with a little bit during the coronavirus. So this is the desire to try and aim for uh, a combination of conservative fluid management, like you say, on the infographic and the tidal volumes of four, eight, four to eight mils per kilo of ideal body weight. Now, it's interesting you say four to eight mils per kilo. Uh, it did used to be six to eight mils per kilo, but we are gradually sliding to even smaller tidal volumes, aren't right. we? What, what drove right. that number for you? Yeah, so during, the, uh, during my experience in New York, we were putting lower, we were putting patients on lower, lower tidal volumes uh, in order to kind of give us a little bit more wiggle room with other, with some of the other bed settings. And what I found was that a lot of these patients were doing just fine, if not better on the lower tidal volume settings. And I had looked into some of the literature behind this and found that, you know, of course we don't like those, those large lung volumes of, of 10 milliliters. That was obviously causing patients harm. But as, like you said, we're sliding lower and lower to those um, lower and lower volumes are seem to be having improvements in these patients and their oxygenation seems to be not dramatically affected, if not, again, like improving and better. And so that was kind of why I created that range of, of um, more so on the four than the, than the eight and kind of giving that flexibility for those who are referencing this infographic in the clinical setting to know that this range does exist and that just because it's, a, you know, we were at six doesn't mean that if you see a patient on four, you shouldn't raise the alarms and say this isn't the appropriate therapy. I, I mean, and again, this is anecdotal, but from my experience, there is still a tendency um, to overventilate the patients. I mm-hmm. still come across patients who um, sometimes haven't even had their ideal body weight calculated. If they have, we're not adhering to the volumes necessarily um and during again um i feel like i'm saying this a lot but during the coronavirus um era i was finding that these patients some of them have incredibly stiff lungs and if you try and get anything like eight mils per kilo into their lungs then your uh, your plateau pressures are easily above 30 we were getting 35 to 40 with some of them um mm-hmm. and consequently i think aiming for much lower mills per kilo and perhaps tolerating we certainly had to tolerate a bit of um hypercapnia because um mm-hmm. otherwise you weren't going to be able to oxygenate them properly the the other thing as well and and this is interesting because this is still a relatively new concept i think certainly amongst some of the 
um, people new to ITU is the driving pressure that we should be aiming mm. for as well. Um, there used to be a focus on, you know, what's your plateau pressure, what's your ideal, what's your uh, mils per kilo, um, but not necessarily mm -hmm. looking at the driving pressure. And for those of you that aren't watching and are just listening, so the driving pressure is uh, the plateau pressure minus the peep, and you're aiming to keep that less than 15 centimeters of water. Um, and it's mm -hmm. a measure of your compliance, isn't it? So, you know, if your plateau pressure um, is something like, 25 to 30 um and your your peep um you've got at um uh, i don't know we were looking at 10 to 12 quite commonly for our coronavirus patients and your driving pressure you could say is getting on the higher side and it's that that's doing the inflating and deflating of course isn't it because mm -hmm. you know below peep there's nothing happening other than the alveoli staying open um and it's that that potentially is going to be causing the injury to the lungs yeah and what like more specifically too with the peep it's uh we saw this quite a bit uh with the with the covid patients is that there are a lot of individuals trying to follow a set you know the the ards net protocols and in working in an escalating fashion but what we found actually which was more efficient is that individualized PEEP is probably more appropriate for these patients. Yeah. And so when you liberalize yourself from those kind of protocols and tailor it more to what works best for the patient, you actually yeah. have a little bit more of uh, flexibility in, in space to personalize the driving pressure at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially in a patient who has very good respiratory compliance, that's young, younger, healthier, uh, you can work a little bit more with the ventilator to better oxygenate and ventilate them when you have a little bit more liberalized PEEP. Yeah. And again, the gases we were accepting uh, were much different from pre-COVID gases. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm talking kilopascals now. I don't do millimeters of mercury, so it might sound yeah. a bit bizarre to an American ear, but we, sure. for example, our PO2, we were accepting uh, as a PO2 of eight and above and a CO2 of something similar. So eight and eight wouldn't be unusual for us. We'd be happy with that um, if they were, if I did, if they were slightly hypercapnic, but we were still managing to get some oxygen into them, then we would be happy with that as well. Um, so, you know, things have changed um, for that type of patient. And like you say, the PEEP levels, I think probably our average PEEP must have been around about 10, I would think, for our patients. Pre-COVID, our average PEEP was probably more like seven. So our PEEP values did go up a little bit, certainly. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk to you about, because this is sure. a bit controversial, is the recruitment manoeuvre. Yeah. This is something that I haven't seen done in this country for I haven't seen it done probably for five or six, seven years, I would imagine. Is this something that's still done occasionally in the States? Uh, so from my two institution experience with this, uh, I can tell you that I'd seen it a lot more when we were in New York. Uh, I'm not seeing it as much here in Pittsburgh. Uh, we are doing the um, prolonged inspiratory hold maybe is one of the recruitment movers that we do a little bit more commonly in Pittsburgh. Uh, but the, I would say that the rest of them, it was very, uh, it would be very intensivist dependent as to like, they kind of stick to one and, and, and use it from there. Uh, and to see kind of how does the patient respond to that, that particular recruitment maneuver. And that mentality or that thought process is a little flawed because it doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't respond to other types of recruitment maneuvers. Uh, and so that's kind of why there's that, you know, trial and error 
Uh, and part of the reason why also the literature finds this very controversial is that it's just so widely varied and difficult to actually study and assess. Uh, and so there is, when, when we were in New York, we would accept a lower um, uh, SpO2 and a level of hypoxia that was kind of expected in, in COVID patients. And I think that is why it allowed a little bit more flexibility with performing some of these recruitment maneuvers. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing it. I've just, uh, I, I've, I've not seen it done for s- such a yeah. long time. I remember one time that we did actually do it and uh, we hadn't actually checked that the patient had a pneumothorax and the patient did have a pneumothorax and we just made the pneumothorax. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's yeah. just one of those things, unfortunately. Right, um, right. Thank you very much, Mark. I think that's really interesting. I think that's something that will make um, my listeners stroke viewers think a little bit harder about what we're going to be doing with some of these patients. I think in the next two or three years post-COVID, a lot of this is either going to be validated or changed, isn't it? You know, because of what we've seen. We've got a huge research population to go and explore now. Um, For me, probably one of the treatments that is best for um, the ARDS patient or certainly the coronavirus type patient is the the proning and the Mm -hmm. protection. Um, I think we almost had our arm twisted into using neuromuscular blocking agents um, in the wrong way because we then couldn't get the patients off the damn things. Um, And we even used, uh, we found ourselves occasionally using several different types of sedation keep the patient ventilated as well. It wasn't unusual for us to have patients on propofol, alfentanil, morphine, and midazolam at the same time. I think the other issue for us as well is that we were using a lot of ventilators we weren't familiar with. Um, You know, we bought some of the older ventilators out of service. We were using uh, theater uh, anesthetic machines to um, ventilate our patients, which isn't ideal. Um, so, and we were using some transport ventilators, things like the Hamilton T1, which is a good ventilator to transfer somebody on. It's not necessarily a great ventilator to leave somebody on long term, but those are the situations we found ourselves in, and I'm sure you yeah. do too. Yeah, we actually uh, we found ourselves using a lot of the transport ventilator, specifically the LTV ventilator, and as a result, uh, because of how much many of my colleagues were unfamiliar with it, I ended up creating uh, additional infographics that actually outlined how to use these ventilators in all of the different modes with a step-by-step fashion. Be happy to share those infographics with you as well. Um, and so it was just a, a, a great measure of how we needed to adapt in a rapidly changing environment with a new disease that we didn't know much about. Uh, okay, just one quick question that just occurs to me. Sure. Um, how do you make these infographics? What do you use? <laughs> so actually, I use uh, PowerPoint, just the good old fashioned PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, and I have added just several of plugins, several things that uh, make it a little easier for me to do that. Things like uh, the QR code um, for Office, it allows me to put my references. Um, I also uh, make it so that it's kind of like a palette um, or uh, like a way to, for me to just to draw with rulers and grid lines and make it very kind of uh, uniform to the starting base. And then I actually have an uh, actual stylus that I, I draw them out first uh, and then I convert it into whatever visually appealing theme I've am in the mood for that particular time. So, and where can people, where is the best place for people to be able to access them? 
Yeah, so Twitter um, seems to be the best place if you uh, follow me on that. Um, MRamseyDO is my handle. Um, but then also the website GroupMed, that's G-R-E-P-M-E-D, is a, is a website that I've uploaded a lot of my, twi- uh, my infographics to. I'm actively working on getting a website up and running. Uh, and I can localize uh, everything into one central space. Um, but the other place is also Rebel EM. I happen to send a lot of my infographics uh, and post them on Rebel EM as well. So kind of uh, multiple venues for, for learners and viewers to see them. Brilliant. Great. Okay. So that's where people can go and find them. So mm-hmm. thanks, Mark. Um, I, I am going to be... I am going to be knocking on your door again because I was just uh, digging out these images again this morning. I saw several others on your timeline that caught my eye as well. So uh, yeah. you and I may well be chatting again soon, hopefully. More, more than happy to discuss them. I'm always, uh, always honored and it's a privilege to be uh, on here with you for sure. Excellent. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Tweet us at CC Practitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash critical care practitioner or search critical care practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>